Hello and welcome to season six, episode one. Season six of the Scene from Above <laughs> podcast. I'm Alistair. And I'm Andrew. And we are your hosts for a show that aims to bring you an informal discussion about the cool things happening around the world of Earth observation at the moment. You can reach us via the podcast webpage, seenfromabove.org, where you'll also find the podcast archive and show notes. Follow the show on Twitter via at EOSceneFrom and using the hashtag SceneFromAbove. This episode, we'll be chatting to the awesome ladies of Landsat about diversity and equality in STEM and EO in particular. Do you want to say anything about satellites or not? <laughs> They're great. <laughs> Move on. Um, the thing I was going to mention is that Planet at the moment are doing a conference um, Interestingly, it's the first time they've ever done one of these things, and I think it's a two-day event. The thing that caught my eye is that they're going to start doing 50-centimetre sat imagery. And that's interesting because in the past, SkySat, I think, has operated at one-metre resolution. So I believe they're lowering the orbit of these satellites. So maybe that means their life, um, their life cycle, is that the right word? Their life... Um, projected life i keep saying the word life <laughs> <laughs> their their lifetime i can't think of another yeah their life is that the, is, that, is, is the span that they're expected to okay. operate maybe maybe reduced operational cadence there you go yeah i don't think they've got sort of daily coverage on this 50 centimeter data but why am i mentioning it because this seems to be a direct challenge to the more traditional incumbents what i like about planet is they seem to push the boundaries more than other organizations do so let's do the news if that's okay with you yeah let's do the news on wednesday the 16th of october 2019 i want to start by rekindling this idea of blog of the month. (laughs) And that is with a post called 10 Hard Lessons Learned for Creating a Dataset in Our Crops Identification Challenge to Fight Hunger. I love this article because I read it and I thought, I know where the author's coming from and the the team behind it. They're obviously focused on this challenge to fight hunger. There's 10 lessons learned and each one of them, every time I, I read one, I was like, yep, that resonates with me. And I thought that, We don't shout about these things enough. So lesson one, insufficient ground truth data for crop types. Basically, insufficient ground truth data. Yeah. Just say if you disagree. Lesson two, lack of knowledge about satellite imaging and processing techniques. That's an interesting challenge because there are people who know a lot about that stuff. But the ecosystem wants to encourage more people in. And do we have a lack of knowledge or are we not sharing that knowledge in a very coherent way. This one rankled with me a little bit. I agree with most of the others, but this one rankled a bit because it's like me saying, oh, lack of knowledge of TensorFlow. Well, I'm not a machine learning specialist. You know, I understand what machine learning can do and I understand how to implement it. But the nuts and bolts of actually writing a TensorFlow recipe or whatever they call it in order to process something, that's not me. And here you've got a bunch of machine learning people saying like, oh, well, satellite imagery it's really hard to understand how to handle it and process it and it's like well yeah maybe i'm being devil's advocate a bit too much there but i don't know i think this is where you need to bring together collaborative groups of people yeah i actually agree with you there i do sympathize with what they're saying here because they're kind of saying 
oh, we've heard about this satellite imagery stuff and it can solve world hunger. Or someone said, you should check this out as a data set. I'll tell you, one of the things I really like about this post is the fact that the person who's written it has bothered to sit down and go through each of these 10 different things that they've learned and quite comprehensively with diagrams and other things explained what it is that they had problems with, where they got stuck, what they've learned from that. And each one of the 10, you know, he's got A, B, C, D, there's various different things listed. This This blog post would be an absolutely brilliant place, a starting point for a hackathon or for something where you get a bunch of people together. Those of us who have knowledge of the Earth observation data and can get access to it, those people like the ones it seemed were working on this, which are are sort of specialists in machine learning, but also get get some crop specialists in there and some agriculture specialists and some policy specialists. And then you could almost go through this blog post and use that as a, as a jumping off point for really trying to address this properly. I, I almost want someone to fund that sort of event so that we can all get together and solve the lessons that have been brought up here or, or address them. Yeah, that's interesting, isn't it? That would be a very interesting kind of event, wouldn't it? Planet, are you listening? Xavier? <laughs> <laughs> um, Radiant um, Earth? <laughs> this kind of breaks it down into the sort of steps i think so i really enjoyed the post and i I felt that there were a lot of good lessons learned for for all of us in here and i really wish more people would come out and say we tried this and it didn't work and this is why that's just as interesting as saying we tried this we got 100 percent, and it's brilliant something that i came across which i thought was a really neat idea wiley have released a virtual journal issue and it's called climate change and archival photogrammetry and it's just quite a neat idea one that i hadn't really come across before and with climate change being in the news so much at the moment i thought it was interesting and worthwhile to highlight it what they've done is taken a series of different papers that have been published in the photogrammetric record over the past however many years and put them together into this sort of virtual issue. Mm. So they've got papers from 2017 and then 2008, going right the way back to sort of 1989, 1992. It's looking at how you can use long-term aerial photography archives and different methods to try and look at the change in things like glaciers and snow cover and sort of alpine landscapes and things like that. It's all open access, freely available. Going off a little bit of a tangent, do you think people should publish the code that they've Um, used or developed in papers? More recent papers in certain journals are asked to publish code or make the code available. There's, There's a couple of interesting things there because I don't know whether by just making the code available that gets peer-reviewed as well to see whether it actually does what it says Mm. it's doing. Good point. I don't know whether publishing the code means putting it alongside the paper or whether you just put a link to a GitHub repository or other repositories are available. There are a whole load of issues around this that are quite interesting that we probably don't have time to discuss. Um, I wanted to give a quick shout-out to something that we missed, I think, in April which was the SAR handbook got published. Oh, okay. So this is a comprehensive methodology for forest monitoring and biomass estimation. You can download the whole thing in PDFs. It's big. And <laughs> this is a really lovely, really lovely, I sound like my auntie. This is a, a really lovely set of resources. If you're just getting into SAR or you want to learn about it, do go and check it out. We'll stick the link in the show notes. 
Something that I came across that I thought was quite interesting, particularly as last month I was up in Edinburgh for the Phosphogy UK conference, was an article that came out of the Centre for Ecology and Hydrology, so CEH, here in the UK, which is a sort of research organisation. Dr Claire Rowland was the principal investigator for this piece of work, and it's just reporting that Edinburgh is losing the equivalent of about 15 football pitches, so that's uh, UK soccer pitches, of Greenland each year, mainly due to private garden areas being paved over or built on. This is interesting because when I was up in Edinburgh, there was a couple of things that I came across about how there's a a real housing problem because of the number of Airbnb properties that are up there. And so actually Edinburgh is in a bit of a housing crisis. And then here we, we find out that also they're losing their green land and possibly because they're talking about how it's being built on, you know, it's additional rooms and things being built, maybe then being let out for more Airbnb. So it's a sort of cyclical problem, although they don't mention the link in this blog post it's time we started putting financial numbers to these things a bit more i think to say this is actually the physical cost of everybody tarmacking over their drives and remote sensing and and satellite data and drone data and airborne data and all this kind of stuff that we work with you can turn pixels into pounds or dollars or whatever it is and say x thousand more pixels means x thousand more pounds of impact on the river catchment or insurance premiums or whatever it is let me sort of talk about two quick things and the first is geofeather i haven't looked at it i haven't touched it but it's definitely on my list and this is a i think it's a recently released python library for input output for geopandas and the premise is that geopandas on very large data sets is too slow this is a much faster way and seeing speed ups for where are we seeing writing to shape files for about five to seven times so wow, okay. these these kind of things when you stand alone and you've just got one shape file and you're running the code perhaps you don't really feel the benefit of a five to seven times speed up even though you could be impressed by it but when you're dealing with thousands and thousands of shape files then you could be saving huge amounts of time there and the other thing i wanted to mention i mean it's not really related to observation or geospatial but one of the things that got me really excited about this huge deluge of satellite data that we've got and, and processing and everything was computer vision. By far and away, the best, I think, is a guy called Adrian Roebuck, who runs PyImageSearch.com. And he's just released a introduction page to OpenCV. Basically, it links to a lot of his posts. He steps you through from installing it to picking your niche to, you know, highlighting some of the you know it's all work that he's done and he's put absolutely hours into this that's absolutely amazing check it out that's a huge resource that he's that he's put out there and i think we'll leave it there for the news Okay, we're lucky enough to have with us Morgan Crowley, and she's here to chat to us about Ladies of Landsat and also a few things about Google Earth Engine as well. Hi there, Morgan. Great that you're here. Um, Could you just introduce yourself quickly to the listeners? Yeah, thank you so much for having me. Um, So my name's Morgan Crowley. As you said, um, I'm a PhD candidate at McGill University in Montreal, Canada. And basically, I study and map and analyze wildfire progressions using Google Earth Engine. And I'm also very fortunate to help 
coordinate the Ladies of Learnsat organization, a largely Twitter-based organization, and I'll talk a bit more about that today as well. Yeah, that was going to be my first question, really, is who are the Ladies of Landsat and how was the group formed in the first place? Yeah, so um, the Ladies of Landsat are basically a place for um, gender minorities in remote sensing, uh, especially Ladies of Landsat, uh, ladies who use Landsat. But we say we're sensor agnostic. And Kate Fickas, Dr. Kate Fickas, started this organization basically to bring together folks from a largely male-dominated field. And she found going to conferences a lot of times, there'd be very few women. And it could be challenging to go in front of a lot of dudes, basically, and present your research, have confidence to show your research and share your research and feel confident in yourself in the field. Um, this is kind of a broader challenge in all of sciences. Yeah, so what we do, we're kind of everyone's cheerleaders. We're really focused on the retention of women who are in the field, gender minorities in the field, advocating for them, sharing their research, celebrating their wins, um, supporting them when, you know, so we all have failures. And something that we've done a lot of is actually coming together at conferences that we've been able to attend and have a networking event so we can meet each other in person. Oh, that's really cool. I was um, doing a little bit of searching around online earlier on and I came across the hashtag STEMinism, which I thought was awesome. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It was to do with a side event that you guys did at ForestSat. Can you just tell us a bit more about that? Yeah, so the ForestSat event was at University of Maryland last October, October 2018. This was incredible because the organizers of this conference actually approached Kate and asked her to do something for this. And that's just about when I started on board. Um, I'm, it was an amazing conference. I got chills. It was the first time I ever spoke to more than one woman about remote sensing, high <laughs> technical things with like Dr. Jody Vogler and uh, Dr. Joanne White. And I literally went back to my room that night and cried a little because it was like, oh my gosh, I've never had that before. Talking about forestry in this level of depth. And that can be shared by a lot of folks in the field. So this event was basically evening with Ladies of Landsat. It was at a local bar and everyone came and it was a networking event for people to meet each other. At this event, Dr. Monica Moscow brought her uh, ground LIDAR and took an actual image of everyone there. <laughs> and it was awesome. <laughs> so we stood in a circle for like 10 minutes while it collected its... Uh, its data. And so many people came up to us that night just saying, oh my gosh, I've never been with this many women in the field. This is incredible. Um, and so we ended up doing a similar event called the Geo Meet at the Geo for Good 2019. And again, it just provided a place for people to come together and talk about it. So how international is it as a group? And can you just talk a little bit about the links to women in geospatial, if there are any, and other sort yeah. of um, minority groups as well? Yeah, so the, it's pretty international, but I would say because it was obviously started in North America, I think that we have kind of our broadest foundation there, um, and both of our conferences have been in North America. We have like 2,000 followers, I think, now on Twitter. We have folks all over. Our ties to women in geospatial are that we're uh, cheerleaders for each other. I think they okay. do an incredible job with their Slack group and their they advertise so many jobs and they really are so great about providing professional um, mentoring and networks for women in geospatial broadly and that covers GIS as well. I think that sometimes obviously with Ladies of Landsat we people read the name and they assume 
that's all it is. Um, but we have folks who are using UAV research, um, who are doing LIDAR, who are using other sensors as well. So it's pretty broad. But yeah, so some other really great organizations, there's the Women in GRSS, which is the like Win GRSS. That's part of the um, IEEE group, I guess. And they do an awesome mentoring activity as well for um, kind of mid-career researchers, post-PhD. They match them with, with higher level folks. There's Women in GIS, which has been around for quite some time and they're quite established in the field. And they were actually the first group that I ever joined um, way back in my undergrad. And I remember being psyched to see <laughs> <laughs> them. Um, and so that's really cool. There's Geo Latinas, and they have an incredible fan base as well, uh, supporters, and they do a lot of work. Well, first of all, they have the coolest looking swag of all time, um, <laughs> if you have a chance to look at it. But they do so much for the Latina subsection of science. And they span not just uh, remote sensing and GIS, but also going into domains like geology. And so there's some awesome groups that <laughs> I was going to say, has anybody thought about putting all these groups together at a conference? It'd be awesome. Just like, have a, a, a conference where they all come together. I didn't even get into the groups that are like unique scientists, all these other groups who are doing uh, also LGBTQ work and just there's so much and it's so awesome. And everyone kind of has their own like little niche and it's yeah. important to have all of them yeah. um, because, but it's also important for us to work together and again, like I think Geo Latinas and Women in Geospatial or yeah, have worked together before on an event, which was really awesome. We were happy to work with them. It's uh, it's really neat to bring everyone together as well. Cool. Um, I've, I've got a couple more questions that I just want to ask yeah. about this topic before we move on. One of them is, do you see that there's a need for more role models to be leading this? Or does this sort of grassroots style movement where everyone's joining through social media and, and doing their own little bit and shouting out for each other, do you think that's of more importance? Or do you think both have to coexist together? It's one of these things that really interests me in terms of how communities and groups function. It's really interesting. I think about that a lot because I also run my local uh, women in science chapter on campus. And as part of that, we're uh, an affiliate member for the Association for Women in Science. They're enormous group. Um, so much. They have lobbyists in Washington. They're just, wow. they okay. do so much. They have so much structural support. Mm-hmm. And it's really nice to be keyed in with them because they have so many resources like weekly webinars to learn about research in the field, professional networks far outside of just academia. I think it's so important to have everything. I think like we have like a capacity problem as individuals, like obviously running this group, I can only do so much because I'm a PhD student. I have my own research to do. And so it's really awesome like to grow to a size where you can have someone who's dedicated full-time just to a group. You know, we kind of have like a plateau that we'll reach in terms of what we can do because we are group led. We have some new folks who are really helping me out. They're awesome. Michelle from Arizona State University and Agnes from the UK. And they're just tagged recently because we're starting Manuscript Mondays series um, where we highlight a different paper every Monday from a gender minority researcher in remote sensing. And they're helping me write that because I cannot at all take that (laughs) on by myself. So it's just so nice. Some other folks who have been really awesome for organizing are like Dr. Megan Halabeski from University of Washington and Dr. Aaron Trocom from University of Alaska Fairbanks. Um, And we have some other things that we're working on behind the scenes um, that it's nice to have other people to talk to about it. Yeah, you can't do these things on your own. No. (laughs) Yeah, when you've got other things to do as well. My final sort of question on this was to do with overcoming unconscious bias, particularly particularly in the EO sector. And this came up recently, I I was looking through uh, a document and 
it was talking about a call for information from PhD students. And it was written as he will be doing this and his PhD will be this. And it's just like, oh, really? There's no need for that in this day and age. How can we call this out, this unconscious bias when we see it? What should we be doing to really sort of yeah. help make it a, a more inclusive community in earth observation yeah well i think first of all your own language that you use um i've been shifting myself and this has been a long conversation with other people i try not to just use women because i know that that's not the only gender minority in the field and i also know that it's been challenging for me but other people have their own experiences and it's even more challenging for them it's both about like normalizing, seeing different types of scientists at a younger age, but also about making sure we retain the folks that we have as well. Diversity often just thinks about how people look. You know, some folks that I know who have had the most challenging time in science have actually been people who are first generation scientists, first generation university students, and went through university without any idea of what they should be advocating for themselves. So I think it's about both things, right? Because like as scientists, we're supposed to be, a lot of times our identities are taken out of being a scientist because we have to be unbiased and only think about the research. Yeah. But actually as scientists, we're all biased because we are humans. And also realizing that every person has a unique experience and we can't necessarily predict what they've come to the field with. The best way to have innovation in science is to have people with different experience and diverse perspectives. And so I really think about the ultimate goal of it. And I want more people who are coming from different backgrounds, who have different experiences growing up, who can provide unique um, observations and really get our, like, get it going. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. How do you feel about the sort of silent minority so not everyone's on Twitter, not everyone's on social media. There is a bigger community than just the social media. Yeah, for sure. Um, one thing that was really cool, like you mentioned um, at conferences, like at the GeoMe at Google Earth Engine, we explicitly made it open for all genders because we wanted to make sure that everyone could feel a part of that. And we had some awesome people show up as well. They didn't just see that it was organized by two women's groups and not show up. Like Emile Sherrington, who's BZ Geo, who if you are not having on the show, you should. Oh my gosh, he's <laughs> the best. He's awesome. He came and he was just such an awesome friend um, to be there and also to network himself and meet all these awesome people. Justin Broughton was there. It's really cool when people obviously they're both on social media so I guess <laughs> they're not necessarily the silent mi uh, minority but it's cool to make events that are open to everyone yep. um, so that you can get more people coming um, I think the other thing is like I love women in geospatial slack group because that's a really great way to get people connected in a more intimate setting I mean it's very big slack group but it is like <laughs> it's not necessarily twitter it's not facebook it's not whatever it's it's a professional site for people to get together and i think they're just doing an awesome job so is that open to anybody i think it's just women in geospatial um okay. I, I don't know for i think yeah that's for the slack group is just for women in geospatial the email list is for everyone though. i think when i get around to talking about earth engine which i probably won't or i don't know who knows <laughs> no i want to talk about earth engine <laughs> yeah this this whole um academic versus non-academic career so are you choosing a path to stay in academia I'm very narrow in my focus right now. Like 
I can only think like the next year. And I'm like, oh, I have to finish my PhD. <laughs> yeah, I appreciate it was a pretty nasty question. It's like, what do you want to do in five years' time? No, no, like, oh, what is this? I'm a planner. So there's like, I have all these ideas, but whether they'll work out or not is a whole other thing. I think everyone's interests are different, right? I love women in geospatial because they really acknowledge that they support a broader group of individuals in the field because they have a lot of people who are just, uh, who are, who are professionally focused, currently working, whether or not they have even an undergrad degree. I see academia as a place where I can do the research I'm interested in doing while still getting to teach a group of students in the way that I want to. I love teaching the theory and making it easily understandable by people but you know I recognize I'm pretty cynical so I know who knows if I'll get a job in the field or not so let's talk earth engine yeah I sort of feel I want to sort of virtually high five you for, for using it <laughs> <laughs> but um could you do your work without earth engine yes of course definitely and I have it would take so much longer but I could totally do it in the same way um I could do it in python I could do it in R. I could do it in ArcGIS model builder. I could do whatever I needed to do. Um, I could do it in QGIS. But for me, the scale, the sheer magnitude of what I'm able to do is made possible in an academic setting by using Google Earth Engine. If I wasn't, I'd be taking months and months and months to do something that I can do now in a week. I mean, I recognize I live in a publisher parish kind of atmosphere. So it's important for me and my career development to, to be able to do things faster and to do things in a larger way, because the questions I ask can be very limited if I'm only looking at one fire versus 500 fires. Yeah. I mean, do you think that the main win is the quick access to the data? Yeah, for everyone, I'm sure it'd be a different answer. For me, I think it's twofold. Um, the first, definitely I can see accessing the data. When I was an undergrad, I spent all summer downloading like 13 Landsat yeah. images and using Model Builder to analyze it and running out of space on my local computer. I remember running Model Builder over the weekend. So maybe I'd have something on Monday. Yeah. Yeah. And now I'm like, I can access 70,000 images, whatever, um, you know, right in Earth Engine. So that's really awesome. The second is the sheer processing capacity of using their servers to run my algorithms. And like our lab has an algorithm, the bulk algorithm, it's a Bayesian updating the land cover. It uses Bayes theorem and tracks the components per pixel um, over time for classifications. And when they ran this in R, it would take like days, days, days to run on a small area. And now I can run it over all of BC and Earth Engine in 30 seconds. And it not even it takes longer to actually export the data than it does to create the data. <laughs> so like, it's it's yeah, it's it's pretty awesome. One of the things that impresses me about Earth Engine as well is not just the technical, but is the fact that you've got so much support around it. Are you on the Google group developer list? Yeah, I don't always uh, necessarily like write in just because I <laughs> think I have imposter syndrome where like I must not know how to do that, even though I've been using Earth Engine now for five years or something, a long time. But I, it's awesome. Anytime I'm trying to do something, I search and I find a way to do it. It's so much yeah. faster. I mean, Google's like a lifestyle and they have an awesome outlook on life sometimes. And it really is apparent in Earth Engine um, to have that excitement and their support for their scientists is awesome. Yeah. I mean, you have sort of, you almost have direct access to them, don't you? Yeah, in a lot of ways. Yeah. 
because you were there, weren't you, at the Geo for Good event? Yeah. Give us a very, very brief highlight. There's a lot of introductions into TensorFlow and getting real results from it, which is super exciting. There's other machine learning workshops like neural segmentation and best practices for machine learning, which is so important as we're more and more people are using it to make sure we're doing it scientifically correct. Yeah, just because you can produce does something doesn't mean you should produce something, I guess. Like, <laughs> also, it was so cool because this year they combined Google Earth Engine um, User Summit with the Geo for Good. Yep. And that was so cool because to really see folks who are using Google Earth, like other Google products, mapping products for their own work and meaningful things, like not just, you know, for a scientific paper, but also for like communities, the indigenous languages um, group. Uh, that was so cool. They're basically preserving indigenous languages around the world using Google Earth. For me, this year was a bit different. Last year, I really focused on going to all the workshops and um, learning new skills. This year, I learned a lot of new skills, but I also focused on creating networks for collaboration and continuing on. Let me just ask you the $64,000 question. (laughs) Here it comes, because loads of people ask it, and it is, what happens if they turn it off? So I did a bit of research on this just to get their exact wording. And I know it's free for research, education, and nonprofit use. So if you fall into any of those domains, you can continue using it. They offer paid commercial licenses, and it's really worth approaching them. I know so many um, organizations that are using it, like conservation organizations. So it's important to think about, it's not just academia, fortunately, it's it's open for a broader use. There's that. And if it's turned off, I highly doubt it will. There's so much excitement about it and so much support from internal at Google. The fact that the CEO was mentioning Google Earth Engine and a huge announcement makes me think it's going to be at least here for, you know, hopefully 10 years, I guess. (laughs) Um, And, you know, I think honestly, this has been such a great model for so many folks. I wouldn't be surprised if something else comes along similar. And it's important to take the skills you learn from Earth Engine and apply it in other places too. Like I can use Python now because I know Earth Engine. Thank you, Morgan, for your time. That's been really, really interesting. I'm sure all three of us could chat about all sorts of things for ages. If you have any requests for new segments, topics for us to discuss, or guests you'd like to hear from, then we encourage you to drop us a line through Twitter using at EOSeenFrom or our personal accounts at AJGJogger and at Math underscore Andrew. Please do get in touch and help us build a vibrant community around the podcast. Thanks for listening, and that's it for now. Thanks, Andrew. Thanks, Alistair. And goodbye. Bye-bye. Oh, is there something on the phone that shouldn't be on the phone? Podcast music is Cracker Jacks and Tin Whistles by Ocean Heights and is licensed under the Attribution Non-Commercial Creative Commons license. Available on freemusicarchive.org.